Hello, and welcome to the December 2017 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Ed Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. And before we go any further... We have to say with, uh, with regret that this is Matt Skinner's last podcast, uh, barring unforeseen circumstances, because he is stepping up to become executive director of the Richard C. Fela LGBTQ Commission of the New York State Courts, uh, effective tomorrow, December 8th. We're recording this on December 7th. And there will be a new executive director of Legal who presumably will become involved with the podcast starting in January. Uh, search is now on for that position. So we have to thank Matt for the wonderful experience of presenting LGBT legal news to our podcast audience for the past four years and wish him good luck. And uh, maybe it's it's partly to, to celebrate and commemorate this event that Matt is our leadoff here <laughs> because we're recording this on December 7th, just days after he went down to Washington and attended the oral argument at the Supreme Court in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. So, Matt, what do you think about this oral argument? Well, thank you for those uh, kind words, Art. It means a lot to me. Um, the argument was uh, very dramatic and really incredible to, to be in the room for. Um, I was sitting two rows directly behind the baker in this case, so that was sort of, uh, you know, it was interesting to sort of watch his reaction and he had a whole sort of fan club of uh, people around him and then the the gay couple was sitting uh, the next aisle over um, so we, we, we might call him the pious recalcitrant baker <laughs> yes <laughs> um, and I spent about four or five hours in line waiting you have to get in line very early before uh, the, they open the doors and such to get in and I was standing next to a whole bunch of uh, I don't know if they work for Alliance Defending Freedom or they're part of the, that movement, if not uh, directly employed by that uh, organization. But they are, you know, the other side really thinks they're on the brink of getting their Obergefell. You could just sort of feel it. Um, I mean, they have, they had a really interesting conversation going. They were saying uh, John Roberts' Obergefell descent should be taught on the first day of law school because it's so brilliant and nails it on the head, and it was sort of like, I'm glad these folks are not in charge of legal education, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, but anyway, so the actual argument itself, um, as you've many, as you probably read if you've read any uh, accounts of this uh, that have been out there, um, all eyes were on Justice Kennedy, and uh, unfortunately, those eyes don't have much to, to say in terms of a prediction after the argument, because he... He said 180-degree things in terms of uh, questioning both sides very hard and sort of uh, admitting that he's, uh, you know, really ideologically torn um, on this issue. Um, and he even looked visibly torn, as I mentioned. Um, I wrote a little article for Gay City News, if, you, if you're interested. Um, but he was leaning on his elbow sort of the whole argument with this ver sort of very serious look on his face. And then after... He asked his question about, you know, won't there be signs and windows about not serving gay couples? After the answer to that question, he did this sort of look up at the ceiling with a very, uh, you know, looking like he was very deep in thought. Um, 
So I, it was just visibly clear that he's really struggling on this case about where he should come down. Well, I thought it was interesting. I uh, obviously wasn't in the courtroom, and they don't live stream their arguments. Uh, so I have to wait probably another day before I can listen to the audio when they finally post it on the website. But they do post the transcript, and I read the transcript yeah. uh, on Tuesday afternoon, and I thought it was noteworthy that all four of the Democratic appointees pretty clearly signaled their concern about the difficulty of line drawing here if they were to allow the baker to have a First Amendment defense in this case, where would they draw the line? What kinds of goods and services, uh, uh, providers of goods and services could make this kind of First Amendment uh, argument? And the First Amendment argument, of course, is divided in two parts, and the uh, free exercise part and the free speech part. And uh, in talking with some of my colleagues here at New York Law School who teach constitutional law, uh, people generally thought that the First Amendment free speech argument was the stronger one for the baker, uh, especially if, as didn't happen in this case, uh, the facts of the case is kind of unusual, the, the, the discussion between the gay couple and the baker didn't proceed to discuss an inscription on the cake, that if you're asking someone to actually incorporate speech that has a definite meaning into their goods or their services, that might present a different case from something that is somewhat symbolic like a wedding cake, but that does not itself say anything in particular. Uh, so, and, and then you get to the floral arrangements, and uh, they still have a cert petition pending from Arlene Flowers in the state of Washington which presents the issue of floral arrangements. And, and, and that came was up. also in the courtroom. Yeah. Oh, she was, Arlene was there too. <laughs> From what I'm told, I don't, I've never seen a picture of her, but people yeah. were telling me she was sitting near us also. Well, maybe she was in a flower print dress. Yes. You know? but, <laughs> but, but so, so those, those four uh, generally considered labeled the liberals, but they're not really all that liberal. You know, the moderate liberals on the court uh, seem to have a problem with creating an exception for the baker in this case from complying uh, one issue that didn't come up in the argument at all, which uh, surprised me, is that unlike uh, some other states, uh, many other states, the state of Colorado does not have a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and so there is no state law requiring the Civil Rights Commission to avoid unduly burdening free exercise of religion. Uh, but then turning to the other side, uh, of course, Justice Thomas didn't speak. Uh, did, did, did he look like he was awake to you? You know, I was so focused on Justice uh, Kennedy, I can't uh, even remember if I looked at him once. Well, but. well, the transcript didn't pick up anything from him, so presumably anything he said was a whisper to his seatmates. Yes. Uh, but uh, the others, uh, Justice Alito and uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch, uh, clearly uh, signaled where they're coming from here. As, as far as they're concerned, this is a pretty solid free speech, free exercise case for the baker. So it all comes down to Kennedy. And I can see how he would be torn because he has been a champion of gay rights on the Supreme Court, but not in every case. Right. We've lost his vote in the Boy Scouts case. We lost his vote in Hurley. Uh, we lost his vote in the uh, Solomon Amendment case. Uh, we got his vote in Martinez, and that is one of the things that gives me hope. That was the case in which uh, the Christian Legal Society was challenging the refusal of a state university law school to recognize its local chapter because of its anti-gay membership policies. And we got Justice Kennedy in that case. And, and that was clearly a free exercise versus equal rights case. Uh, so if free speech. Free, well, or freedom of association, right? Freedom, well, it was, it was 
First Amendment right. in, yeah, in its various sure. forms. Uh, and uh, in writing for the court in that case, Justice Ginsburg characterized it as an all-comers situation, that they weren't singling out religion. They were just saying that you can't have a membership policy that, based on your religion, categorically excludes groups of people, not just gay people. I mean, there were other groups that were excluded. Uh, you had to sign on to a rather rigidly conservative uh, Christian view of sexual morality in order to be a member. Uh, but you know, looking at how this might come out, uh, I think everyone who's talked about the case has predicted that it will be five to four. <laughs> and that Justice Kennedy uh, will be the senior judge in the majority, whichever way he goes, which means he gets to assign the opinion, that the chances are good that he will do exactly what he's done in every other uh, gay rights case where he was the senior judge in the majority. Uh, well, the point is if the chief justice is also in the majority, right. the chief justice decides. If Kennedy is in the majority and the chief justice is dissenting, which is the outcome that we are hoping for, yep. he'll probably assign it to himself. Uh, and he will come up with some way of balancing these constitutional and equality claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, As I was saying to you before we started recording, there's some... Uh, he had, he asked uh, in questioning, he hammered the sort of Colorado Solicitor General about um, a, the transcript from the Colorado Civil Rights Commission when right. it was at the agency level. One of the commissioners said that it's despicable when religion is used uh, to discriminate. And he thought that that was very troubling, that uh, it, it seemed to point out or highlight that the, this commissioner was... Um, unfairly biased towards uh, folks that are religious. Or um, against folks that are religious. Yes. Um, and so some people are speculating that they they might duck all the big issues here and remand for a different commissioner to, to handle this case. But as I was saying to Art, there's no question that they refuse service here, so I'm not sure what what other conclusion a fact finder could come to if they remand it. Well, it's, it's more than the conclusion of a fact finder. It's... Uh, you know, the, uh, the administrative agency is not in a position, really, to make constitutional decisions. They, they apply the statute. Uh, the issue was, what did the Colorado Court of Appeals do? And so, to my way of thinking, the, the best response to that is, forget about the commission for a moment, because the balancing of the constitutional claim against the statutory claim had to be done by the Colorado Court of Appeals. Yeah. And it's the decision that really counts here in terms of... Uh, whether the balancing was properly done at the lower level. But to directly quote him here, he said, tolerance is essential in a free society, and tolerance is most meaningful when it's mutual. It seems to me that the state in its position here has been neither tolerant nor respectful of Mr. Phillips' religious beliefs. And that's when a lot of us sort of clutched our Uh-oh. pearls in the yeah. courtroom. <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, if that's really where his thinking is, that's, uh, scary for us. Well, you know, he threw he threw scare into people uh, in the Windsor case when he talked about how you know the definition of marriage has been a man and a woman for millennia, yep. so, and people say, "Oh, where is he going with that?" Yeah. Uh, but he came out the right way yep. in the end. So uh, I think he was doing a lot of thinking out loud, and yep. he was doing a lot of agonizing out loud, and ultimately, uh, I'm hopeful that he will remain as he has been very protective of the rights of LGBT couples to equal treatment under the law. And, uh, I mean, after writing the Windsor decision and the Obergefell decision, and I'm sure having an important hand in the Pavan decision, 
this past spring. Uh, I think it. I think it's hopeful that he's more likely to come down on the side of the Civil Rights Commission here than on the side of the Baker. But you know, it's it's all speculation at this point. Yeah. And uh, one sign that we'll be looking for is how long does it take them to put out this decision? Because if the Chief Justice in the, is in the majority and writes the opinion relatively quickly, it could be out. You know, February, March. Uh, if it's a five to four on the other way, and it's Kennedy, and then there's a lot of dissents being written on the other side, it could stretch out and not emerge until June. So we'll just have to watch. Yeah. Watchful waiting here. And as we also said before we started recording, the justices are going to conference tomorrow, where they will make an initial vote on uh, this case, and also uh, something we're going to talk about in the last segment of the podcast, but we can mention here, uh, they'll have their first real chance to decide whether or not to take up uh, the Title VII issue. And uh, that's right. huge. And before we leave the Supreme Court, we should mention that earlier this week they denied cert in a uh, petition from the city of Houston, Texas, uh, seeking review of the Texas Supreme Court's decision from June 30th, in which that court said that they didn't think the Obergefell case decided the question whether municipal employees with same-sex spouses are entitled to the same employee benefits eligibility as uh, municipal employees with opposite-sex spouses. And the Texas Supreme Court sent that back to the trial court. And, in fact, uh, Lambda Legal over the summer had filed a new lawsuit in federal court on behalf of some Houston employees uh, seeking to resolve the same issue. And last month, the trial judge dismissed that case, saying that uh, the matter wasn't ripe because in the interim, uh, employees were getting the benefits uh, and that uh, saying, and this is purely dicta from the federal district judge, but saying that, of course, the Texas trial court that's now considering this question is bound by Supreme Court precedent, including Obergefell and Pavan. So that judge is likely to end up rejecting the taxpayer challenge to the extension of the benefits. So we'll see. That's another interesting story that's playing out. What a wild week. Um, All right, we will take a short break, and when we return, we'll throw some shrimp on the Barbie, as uh, they like to say, and discuss marriage equality finally arriving in Australia. Good day. We are back. (laughs) You loving all my Australia humor art? Well, I I didn't quite hear the accent there. (laughs) Good day, Mike. After the overwhelming results of the Australian Postal Survey on marriage equality were released, the parliament there has moved quickly to enact it into law, and as of today, the uh, House in their parliament, uh, they have a similar uh, national legislature as like we do uh, in the United States, uh, passed the bill that the Senate has already passed, and uh, apparently there needs to be now royal assent, whatever that actually means. I think it means nothing, mostly. I think it means the governor general who represents the queen has to sign off on this. But I think he's expected to. So uh, anyway, Art, can you tell us how we got here? Yeah, how we got here. This is this is an interesting story uh, that goes back years and years and years. Uh, the LGBTQ rights movement in Australia has been pushing for marriage for a long time. And uh, they were actually successful in persuading the legislative body for the Australian Capital Territory to uh, adopt a same-sex marriage uh, measure, which then was struck down in the Supreme Court of uh, the High Court 
of justice because they said that, in fact, in Australia, unlike the United States, marriage is a question that's decided at the federal level, not at the state level. Uh, And in the same time, though, the high court made clear that references to marriage in the uh, founding constitutional documents of Australia does not limit the parliament, uh, that it could, if it wanted to, adopt same-sex marriage. And so the issue having arisen to the national level and become a subject of debate uh, in the media there, uh, the public opinion pollsters started asking people, what do they think about this? And over the years, the support for same-sex marriage just grew and grew, and it got an extra kick after the Obergefell decision and after uh, the UK adopted marriage equality New Zealand adopted marriage equality. Uh, People were feeling that Australia was actually lagging behind. And the main barrier uh, to achieving marriage equality in Australia, uh, from my vantage point, is that they don't have a two-party system, (laughs) that uh, actually they have multiple parties and that uh, the government is frequently a coalition government of groups with differing ideological perspectives and As a result, it's hard, it it proved hard, if not impossible, to put together a coalition that was sufficiently supportive across the the board of marriage equality to allow the measure to come up for a vote. Uh, And the position that ultimately was being taken by the current coalition uh, was that they could not move forward to allow a vote on the floor of the parliament on marriage equality unless they went first to the people in a plebiscite of some sort and got an official sounding of public opinion. They felt the public should be allowed in some form to vote on it. Now, the public can't enact statutes through initiatives in Australia the way some states do, like California in the United States, but they could do a sounding of public opinion through an official plebiscite. Uh, But the Labor Party, in conjunction with LGBTQ lobbying groups, felt that a plebiscite was a bad idea that having the general public as a whole vote on this would result in an ugly campaign that would be very damaging, especially to LGBT youth and to uh, families uh, headed by same-sex couples, that there would be all kinds of awful propaganda in the media. Uh, And so the Senate blocked the holding of a plebiscite. Uh, But the pressure was on to do something. Uh, So Malcolm Turnbull, the prime minister, said, if we can't do a plebiscite, we'll get the Australian Bureau of Statistics to do a survey, which would be the equivalent of a plebiscite, but wouldn't require legislative authorization. They could do it out of their existing funding and mandate. Uh, That was challenged, and the Supreme Court said, yes, they could do it. That was uh, just months ago. Uh, So they did it. They held a male plebiscite. This is surface mail. This is not email. And the way it works is every registered voter was to receive in the mail a ballot to return by surface mail. (coughs) And there was speculation that this would create some headwinds for the marriage equality movement because older voters who tended to oppose marriage equality were used to using surface mail and younger voters who were not uh, who were not opposed and were generally enthusiastic, public opinion polls showed, were very enthusiastic about marriage equality, first of all, tended not to be registered to vote in disproportionately large numbers and so wouldn't be receiving the ballot, and secondly, had never used a mailbox in their lives. It seems that Australia has gone digital very fast, and email and uh, instant messaging and texting and 
that is how people communicate among the younger generations there, and to a large extent here too. Yeah. So people might have trouble finding a mailbox. Uh, but the big focus, uh, as it looked certain that there was going to be a postal plebiscite, uh, and in fact plebiscite is not the valid term, and in fact within the statistics agency they had an informal situation where people had to pay into a penalty box anytime they inadvertently used the word plebiscite to describe this survey, which was to be non-binding and merely advisory. Uh, a big campaign was undertaken to register young voters and to instruct them as to how to use surface mail. And in the event, uh, it's, it's very interesting how this turned out, uh, the overwhelming support for marriage equality nationwide was extraordinary. There are uh, approximately 150 election districts uh, that are represented, each one by an, an individual member in the House, the lower chamber of the parliament. And 130 out of 150 had majority support in the mail survey for marriage equality. The turnout was extraordinarily high. Close to 80% of the electorate of the registered voters participated. And of those, uh, almost 62% supported marriage equality, mirroring what the public opinion polls have been showing all along. Uh, and not surprisingly, because when you get 80% participation rate, uh, then your national polling is probably going to be in line with uh, the actual outcome. So things move very fast. Immediately after the results were announced, a private member bill was introduced in the Senate. Uh, it was debated uh, for a re relatively short period of time and quickly passed. The measure went to the House, and that was where it was thought that there was going to be more of a problem. And a hundred-odd members of the House actually spoke in the debate. And a lot of it was extremely emotional. Uh, one member of the House proposed to his partner in the course of the debate, which brought down the House quite literally. Uh, and at the end, the custom there, uh, the, the practice is to have a division of the House where all of those who are voting yes go to one side of the House and all of those voting go, no go to the other. And if it's obvious to everybody that the eyes have it by an extraordinary margin, they don't even bother with a recorded vote. Uh, and in this case, there was a, a bit of suspense as to how it would go. But the way it turned out was that all but a handful of members walked over to the yes side, including lots of people who had supported uh, religious amendments uh, to protect the freedom of bakers and florists and others to refuse to be involved with marriage equality, uh, people who had officially campaigned against the survey, that is, against a yes vote in the survey, uh, people who were on record as being opposed to marriage equality, they all, with very, very few exceptions, crossed over to the yes side of the aisle. And so the speaker said there's no need for a recorded vote. They just record the names of the no votes because they were like four or five, depending which press report you read. And so it passed uh, extraordinarily today. And the, this in, video has uh, gone viral on social media of them erupting into song after it passed. I think yeah. the song is called I Am Australian. Well, it wasn't the members of the House. It was the people in the gallery okay. who, who burst into song. And uh, But members of the House, they also uh, seem to be very exuberant, hugging each other and uh, clapping and everything. So uh, there's a, a general feeling of goodwill now, uh, although there is going to be a special committee that's going to be meeting next year to discuss the possibility of passing certain protections for people with religious objections. Uh, we're not sure where that will go. 
But attempts to amend this bill to include those proposals were all voted down by substantial margins. Uh, there is some delay. Uh, depending which news reports you read, marriage equality may become available either in January or February. And we should mention, although it isn't in the December issue of Law Notes because it happened uh, after the beginning of the month, uh, that in Austria the Constitutional Court issued a ruling in favor of marriage equality. Uh, basically an equality ruling. They said uh, civil partnership has advanced so far in the state, especially with the recent uh, amendment that allows same-sex couples to adopt children together. They said there's virtually no difference, and so there's no rational justification for limiting marriage. Uh, and so they basically gave the government one year to make the necessary adjustments in law. And this was a, a two-way decision. It not only said that marriage must be opened up to same-sex couples, it also said that registered partnership must be opened up to different-sex couples. It had been created as a so-called separate but equal category for same-sex couples, but the court said, well, that violates equality too. If different-sex couples want to have a legally recognized relationship with many of the rights of marriage but don't want to call it a marriage, they should have that option as well. Uh, so this has to go into effect by January 1st, 2019. It could be earlier if the government moves to make it so, the government in, in Austria, the ruling coalition there, is extremely conservative, socially conservative, so that seems unlikely. But who knows? Uh, it's hard to make predictions these days when it comes to marriage equality because we have some strange bedfellows around the world in terms of who is approving of it now. Uh, so we get the two big A's, the two big A's that are frequently confused in people's minds, Austria and Australia, because there's just two letters difference between them. Uh, they're both going to have marriage equality uh, within the next year or two. Really great news. Um, we will take another short break, and when we return, we'll come back to the United States and discuss the latest updates in the lawsuits challenging President Trump's planned ban on transgender troops serving openly in the military. We are back. Another federal judge has blocked President Trump's ban on openly transgender troops. Can you tell us how it differed from the first injunction, Art? Okay. Uh, our listeners who tuned in last month may remember that uh, at the end of October, uh, U.S. District Judge Colleen Collar-Cotelli in the District of Columbia had issued a preliminary injunction against two out of the three directives contained in President Trump's August memo which fleshed out the substance of his July tweet banning transgender military service. Uh, she had aimed her preliminary injunction at the ban against enlisting, or as they say, accessing uh, transgender people, and against the directive to discharge uh, transgender service members who are already in. She decided in that case that the plaintiffs did not have standing to challenge the third directive banning the use of Defense Department funds to provide gender transition surgery. Uh, in the new case, uh, November 21st, District Judge Marvin Garbus in the District of Maryland, just next door to the District of Columbia, uh, issued a preliminary injunction, and he found that among the plaintiffs in this case, which had been brought by the ACLU, there were at least two who had standing to challenge the uh, directive on surgery. And so he issued a preliminary injunction against all three. Uh, and 
these cases are, are very similar in terms of their legal reasoning. They feel that gender identity discrimination uh, by the federal government is a form of sex discrimination. Sex discrimination gets heightened scrutiny, and for heightened scrutiny, you need to have a very, very good reason to take the action you're doing. And uh, uh, judge that have been thought yeah, about for yeah, ten seconds yeah. are not meet that standard. Well, he said. Uh, to quote Judge Garbus, President Trump's tweets did not emerge from a policy review, nor did the presidential memorandum identify any policymaking process or evidence demonstrating that the revocation of transgender rights was necessary for any legitimate national interest. Based on the circumstances surrounding the president's announcement and the departure from normal procedure, the court agrees with the D.C. court that there is sufficient support for plaintiffs' claims that, quote, the decision to exclude transgender individuals was not driven by genuine concerns regarding military efficacy. But he went on in pretty strong language to say, the lack of any justification for the abrupt policy change, combined with the discriminatory impact to a group of our military service members who have served our country capably and honorably, cannot possibly constitute a legitimate governmental interest. So he said, you don't even need heightened scrutiny here. He said, this would flunk the rational basis test. Uh, and he also said, it is egregiously offensive to actively encourage transgender service members to reveal their status and serve openly, only to use the revelation to destroy those service members' careers. He was quoting from the plaintiff's arguments with approval there. Uh, he also said, a capricious, arbitrary, and unqualified tweet of new policy does not trump, and I'm sure he chose the verb advisedly, does not trump the methodical and systematic review by military stakeholders qualified to understand the ramifications of policy changes. So this was a total slam against the president uh, in terms of the way he made this decision as well as the substance of the decision, uh, which is a pretty clear signal that although this was just a ruling on a preliminary injunction, you know where this judge's head is at when it comes to a ruling on the merits. Uh, now, in the meantime, we also got a clarifying ruling from Judge Colarcatelli. Uh, the government had asked her to make clear whether, as a result of her injunctions, it had to start allowing transgender people to enlist beginning on January 1st, 2018. And uh, she came back with a rather short memorandum, which she said, yes, yes, that's what I meant. I said that you can't put into effect the uh, directive by the president to continue excluding transgender people from enlisting. Uh, that was part, I mean, what's to clarify, basically? All right, so now uh, there's word that uh, this week, after we went to press on this issue of LGBT law notes, that uh, they're seeking a stay of that decision while they appeal to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, so things are sort of up in the air. I also saw a report, I believe it was from Reuters or the Associated Press, that the Pentagon has already put out word that they're getting prepared to begin accepting applications, enrollment applications for transgender people starting January 1st. So uh, evidently the folks at the Pentagon don't think that the courts are going to stay this. But who knows? I and mean, the D.C. Circuit could decide to stay it. That's also interesting. None of these uh, injunctions are blocking the part of the presidential directive that told the Secretary of Defense to do a report with a recommendation right. for him. Well, that's so it'll be interesting to see what 
he yeah. does with that report if this has been blocked by two well, or more courts. Well, but this injunction, you know, the, the Trump is the lead defendant here. Uh, and this injunction, that's, that's true, neither of these injunctions say that uh, Secretary Mattis shouldn't do the report. And I think there were lots of hopes that he would write a report telling the president that they should make this exception, they should make that exception, and ultimately that there's no need for this policy change. Uh, but uh, no one knows where Mattis is going on that. He was not known while he was in the military as being a big proponent of LGBT rights by any means. Right. Uh, so we'll have to see where that goes. But for now, uh, there are new developments pending, and in fact there's a new development pending tomorrow as we make this podcast because the federal district judge in Seattle, who was hearing argument in the third case, uh, District Judge Marsha Peckman uh, announced at the hearing that she would be issuing a ruling on the motion for preliminary injunction by December 8th. That is tomorrow, which is it's looking like it's going to be a consequential day. Yeah. Uh, so she's going to do that. And the reason she chose December 8th, presumably, is because the new hearing date for the preliminary injunction motion in the fourth case uh, which is pending before uh, District Judge Jesus G. Bernal in the Federal District Court in Los Angeles, uh, is going to be held on Monday, December 11th. So things are happening fast in this area, and I think it is possible that by the end of December we will have four preliminary injunctions against the president in this case, unless one of these judges departs company from all the others in terms of the legal analysis. Uh, but I think given the strength of the two opinions we've seen so far, that seems unlikely. And since both the Seattle and Los Angeles courts would be subject to review in the Ninth Circuit, which is probably one of the most gay-friendly circuits in the country at this point, uh, attempts to get emergency stays out of them by the administration would probably be futile. So we'll see where it goes. I mean, the Fourth Circuit is probably going to get a stay petition on uh, Judge Garbus's preliminary injunction as well yep all right we will take our last short break and when we return for our off note segment we'll discuss two great lgbt wins and cases brought under the broad interpretations of title seven We are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. We got two great wins in fully litigated cases brought under Title VII, one by a gay plaintiff and one by a transgender plaintiff in the last few weeks. Can you tell us about them, Art? Okay. The first one, uh, the gay plaintiff, was actually an action brought by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in uh, support of its interpretation of Title VII as covering sexual orientation, uh, the complainant, Dale Massaro, worked as a telemarketer at Scott Medical Health Center uh, between July 24, 2013 and August 16, 2013. Now, that's not very long. It seems that he immediately encountered a terribly homophobic supervisor who was calling him faggot and treating him with disdain, and he couldn't take it, and he left and went to the EEOC, which brought suit on his behalf. And U.S. District Judge Kathy Bassoon accepted the EEOC's interpretation, uh, found, in fact, the health center didn't put up much of a defense on the facts. Their whole argument was that this case isn't covered by Title VII. So once they lost that argument, they lost the case. And the big interest centered around the remedy. Uh, so uh, Judge Bassoon awarded the plaintiff back pay, compensatory, and punitive damages. 
and issued injunctive relief against the employer. And punitive damages is pretty significant uh, in Title VII case. You don't get punitives unless you show that the defendant knowingly and willfully violated the uh, employment rights of the individual. So that was a big win. And uh, pinning this down at this point is pretty significant because Mr. Trump has been nominating new commissioners to the EEOC, and they might change their interpretation. And, in fact, that has already affected uh, the litigation on the transgender issue because the Justice Department has taken a pretty strong line against transgender coverage under sex discrimination laws. So our other case involves a transgender woman, uh, Professor Rachel Tudor of Southeastern Oklahoma State University, or I should say formerly of Southeastern Oklahoma State University. She was denied tenured. Uh, her attempt to reapply for a second round on the tenure decision was uh, rebuffed by the school, and she eventually left because of the tenure denials, and she wasn't reappointed. Uh, she brought suit, and uh, Judge Robin Cawthron of the U.S. District Court of the Western District of Oklahoma had denied a, a motion to dismiss the Title VII claim, uh, accepting the plaintiff's argument uh, that, after all, Title VII covers sexual orientation discrimination, uh, rather, a gender identity discrimination in cases involving sexual stereotypes. Uh, because the Tenth Circuit is uh, the presidential binding circuit for Oklahoma, and the Tenth Circuit hasn't proceeded far enough along to accepting the gender identity as such is a protected uh, category under Title VII, but they have accepted the sex stereotyping theory. Uh, so my prediction in the last issue of Law Notes was that a prudent employer faced with this ruling against the motion to dismiss would promptly negotiate a settlement. But not this employer. They decided to tough it out before a jury. And the jury awarded damages of $1,165,000 to Professor uh, Tudor, which Professor Tudor is not going to get because Title VII has a cap on damages. Uh, but the jury, of course, was just deciding on legal remedies, and Judge Cawthron still has to hold a hearing on equitable remedies in which she might well order a grant of tenure and reinstatement to Professor Tudor if that's what she's looking for. And the, the damages will be cut way down. Uh, but uh, the potential for equitable relief here remains. And interesting that these damages also included punitive damages. So uh, the only uh, ground on which uh, Professor Tudor lost her case was her hostile environment claim. And the hostile environment claim was based primarily on restroom access issues. Uh, but leaving that apart, uh, there was a finding, obviously, of a willful violation of Title VII in her case uh, by a jury in western Oklahoma. How times have advanced in terms of transgender rights. All right. Well, I'm happy we're ending on uh, that uh, positive note. Um, that's all the time we have today. Let me just add, it has been a really extraordinary privilege to cover the roller coaster that has been the last four years uh, with you, Art, and with all of our listeners out there in the interwebs. Um, and uh, I'm still going to be around and hope to, to uh, do – we'll be doing similar work uh, that I've been doing at Legal. So – um, thank you again to everybody for listening and to Art for putting up with me for four years. Um, I'll end with my usual spiel. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber. 
by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again. Happy holidays. And this podcast will be back in January.